I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14 and verse 15. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him, with Christ, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bad many. And our subject this evening is escaping the limited life. This is a remarkable parable that we should be looking at briefly, uttered by the Lord. The context, well, just a reference to chapter 14 and verse 1. It came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. He had been invited, the Lord, and he had gone to a meal at one of the chief Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin Council of the Jews. They were against him, set against him, and they watched him. They were looking for trouble. They were waiting for him to say something which would give them grounds to accuse him, perhaps of blasphemy or some other charge, and to move against him. But the narrative goes on, and this is just a little context, in verse 2, And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy there in that house. In other words, he had a problem of water retention in his limbs, legs and arms, and perhaps elsewhere, perhaps a failing heart, but he was obviously in a bad way and it was very noticeable and he suffered from this and maybe he didn't have all that long to live. Who knows? Note it was the Sabbath day and Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him. So there was a compassionate healing miracle in that vast room owned by this wealthy chief of the Pharisees. Then he proceeds to speak to them and to say humbling words to them. But it's in that place, at that meal, that he later gives this parable that we're looking at. Verse 15, when one of them that sat at meat with him, heard these things, he uttered this sort of pious exclamation. Perhaps he was a sincere man, though the Pharisees, by and large, were hypocrites and insincere. But he said, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, that produced uh, a question. Who will be in the kingdom of God. It isn't uttered. It isn't stated. But that is the question that the Lord now answers. Says the pious exclamation, Blessed is he who is your companion one day in the kingdom of God. Yes, but how do you get into the kingdom of God? 
how are you among them? How are you become one of those who walks with God and knows him? So the parable. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. This is a parable. It is re- re- remarkable language that's used. In this parable, the house you've got to imagine is extremely large. As the parable proceeds, the owner of the house says to his servants, bring in everyone from the highways and the byways, and they do, and still there is room. It's not a realistic story, it's a parable. It's quite elastic because it's to make a point. Well, there's the great supper. The man who made it is obviously a very wealthy landowner. He's probably the most influential person in the entire area. The chief magistrate, the one to whom everybody has to turn if they're in trouble or in difficulty, the one who owns all the water rights and everything else that you can own, the squire, if you like, of that region. And he comes across the little information we have in the parable as a benevolent man, not a tyrant, not a horror story. A certain man made a great supper and bad many. And verse 17, sent his servant at supper time. The way they did it in those days in that culture was to make the invitation, and that could be made months in advance or weeks in advance. And then the time came for the event. And within a day or two, the messengers would go out and say, it's such and such a time, such and such a day, come. Everything is under preparation. The animals slain and so on. And that's what happens here. People were already invited. They knew about it. And then the servants go out, come for all things are now ready. And verse 18, and this is the strange turn in the parable, and they all, only three of them are going to be discussed, but the implication is there were rather more. Who are these people who've been invited? Well, they seem to be initially, say, tenant farmers who as good as owned their farms, renting them from the regional landowner. They're entirely autonomous. They manage them. They have servants, staff in their own right. They are, I suppose you would say, years ago, the middle class. Nothing uh, against this or that class here, but just for the sake of it, They're well-off people, privileged people, management people, land-renting people who manage their farms and so on. And they've been invited by the wealthy squire. Well, of course, it's in their interests to go. And they should go. And in that culture, they had a duty to go to demonstrate friendship with the uh, regional landlord And, of course, to be known to him, they would naturally want that. And much of the local trade would be ultimately with him, the uh, most important man in the region, 
But if there was trouble or they faced false charges or anything like that, it would be useful for their good standing and their regular payments of their rents and homages to be well known to the regional squire so that he knew they were people of integrity. It was entirely in their interest. They may want greater water rights or whatever to feed their stocks. It's an astonishing thing that all the middle class in the parable refuse or make excuses about going to this benevolent feast. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. Of course, even now, you can see where this is going. This parable is speaking about humanity in general, really. It's also speaking about the Pharisees. It was given in a chief Pharisee's house, but it's speaking about humanity altogether. There is God, Almighty God, our Creator and our owner. What is our response to Him? There is the call of God to the human race through His Word, through Christ. God calls every living soul. What's our response to our Creator? Do we just seize everything from Him and say, no? I want complete moral independence. I want self-determination. I want my life. I want to do what I want to do, have what I want to have, do everything in the way that I determine. I don't want anything to do with God, creator, a ruler on high. What's our response to him? That's what this parable is going to be talking about. The invitation goes out and they all refuse. Just look at the the refusals. In verse 18, the first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. But he'd bought the piece of ground. He knew that piece of ground. They were very canny, those people. He'd surveyed it. He'd evaluated its worth. And he'd bought it. So what does he want to go and see it now for? Why can't he put that off until after the feast? It's his. No, he wants to gloat over it. His possessions count most in his life. He wants to count his cash and see his worth and feel his wealth. That's all he's interested in. What he's got, the here and now his business, his farm. Why doesn't he come clean and say to the landowner, I don't want to come. I have no need of you. I'm not interested in your feast. I resent you having so much influence in the region. I'm not coming. Why isn't he straightforward? Of course, he wouldn't articulate any of that, so he makes a ridiculous excuse. And he doesn't want anything to do with the landowner. Look at the next one. Verse 19, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. Once again, he's already bought them. He's looked them up and down. He's uh, found out about them. That's a lot. 
one yoke of oxen, five he's bought. He's obviously quite prosperous. You could say in modern terms, the haulage side of his business, he's just bought five new trucks. He's evaluated them, he's bought them, he has them. So what does he want to do now? He wants to go and gloat over his transaction, his deal, his bargain. That's what interests him. This man's completely consumed with the here and now, with what he owns, what he has, what he can do on earth. He looks no higher than that. He's living in a box, a confined box of this material world and this material life. He's a human being with a soul, with special powers, higher than the animals, with creativity and language and feelings and judgment and reason, rationality. But he's just living within a little limited box. That's what we do. I'm staying in my box, we say to God. I want nothing to do with anything beyond or outside or the soul or eternity or God or his standards or his kindness. That's tragic, friends. I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. No, to revel in them. I pray they have me excused. Oh, there's lots of old sayings along these lines, you know. Born a man, died a merchant, just a merchant, never developed as a man, no life in the soul, no union with God, no eternal hope. Born a man, died a mere scientist. Born a man, died a shopkeeper. Isn't it pathetic and tragic? I don't want to be offensive to anyone. A parable like this is to lift us out of that box to escape all the phony things that have been said to us, that there is no God, that there's nothing to think about, that this is all there is. Well, verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He seems to be more decisive even than the others. It's impossible for me to come. I cannot come. My life has now become more complex. I have more things to enjoy, more things to indulge in, more things to do. I have no time. No time for what? No time for my creator. No time for eternity. No time for the soul. No time for understanding the purpose of life and the meaning of all things. No time for the plans of God. No time for the deep things of life. I must be crazy, friends. But that's how we think. I want to stay in my box. Verse 21. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things, the three representative cases of all that rejected him. 
Then the master of the house being angry. Of course God is angry. God is holy and kind. But he is perfect and just. And the insult of our turning from him, despising him, setting him on one side, stealing all that he's given to us and consuming it upon ourselves, the anger of God is aroused and there will be a penalty to pay. We will be rejected by God. The key to understanding life, the key to reconciliation with God, the key to walking with him is the message of Christ, that God has sent a saviour, that he suffered and died on Calvary to bear the punishment of sin for all who trust in him and believe in him. And they can be changed and given spiritual life and light and understanding. The key is to believe him and to receive him. I'm sorry for a poor illustration, but when I was a boy in the 40s, there was a, a kind of upsurge of interest in 3D for a time. Of course, it had been developed, 3D film and all that, before World War II. But suddenly it became fashionable and interesting. And the cinemas were all showing 3D films. And of course, as a child, you were there and you were told, well, you, you need the glasses. You know, those cardboard glasses with the plastic lenses, red and blue and so on. And by putting on those things, what was just a confusing image on the screen that you could barely make sense of, suddenly sprang into life clear and sharp and with depth. And if they'd made the film or the cartoon so that something jumped out of you, well, you almost jumped out of your seat. Well, you know all about this kind of thing. But it was new to the general public right back at that time. And to a child, fascinating, and so on. But the key was that those so-called glasses set in cardboard, Without them, you couldn't see anything. Well, I told you it was a poor illustration, but conversion to Christ is rather like that. You don't see any of this before you come to God, humbled by a work of the Spirit in your heart, and you feel your need of his forgiveness. You realize you see that you're a sinner. You see that you're under condemnation by a holy God. You see that you need to be reconciled. You see the need of his suffering and dying on the cross because God is absolutely holy and just. He cannot overlook sin. It must be punished. It must be cancelled by punishment. He is perfectly just in his eternal character and holy. 
He cannot deny himself. He cannot go against his character. Just as God cannot sin, God cannot lie, God cannot fail, God cannot overlook sin. Therefore, the only way he can forgive sin is to come himself. The second person of the Godhead, Christ the Lord, equal with the Father, became incarnate, came down, became man as well as God, so that he could feel as we feel, and went to the cross of Calvary, where something that nobody could see took place. The Father, as it were, veiled his face and poured out upon him the eternal consequences and punishment of sin for all those who would trust in Christ in the history of the world. And for them, he bore away their penalty in his amazing love. To think that a member of the Godhead beyond our comprehension would with such condescension and kindness stoop so low as to do the hardest thing that even God could do, that that member of the Godhead could take in his holy soul the punishment of sin. That's the redeeming work of Christ. You see what he's done. You grasp it. You feel your need of it. In a moment when you put, as it were, the spectacles of the gospel on, you see how Christ has purchased salvation. And you go to him. You run to him. You give your life to him. You repent of your sin before him. You cry out to him for change and for new life. That's the feast in the parable. Oh, if they had gone to the feast, what a feast it was. And what went with it? The friendship of the great man. The patronage and the kindness of the great man. It's a picture of salvation. You go to Christ. He forgives you. He rebuilds you. He gives you a new nature. He gives you power over so much of your sin. You are changed. He puts love into your heart. He relates you to himself. You know him. You can pray to him. You can prove his power. You can have an experience of him. What a foolish thing it is to put this world before God, to be so absorbed by the here and now. And then by rejecting him, we have one day to give account. I won't say much about this, just a sentence or so, but we have to give account. I'm sorry to mention myself, but as a young man, like everyone else, all the men, I had to do national service. And we as national, in national service, we were all about 19, 20. At one point for a time, I was put on a team that was processing 
courts martial. Thus doing the paperwork for courts martial and so on. And uh, a young man, but not so young, he was in his 30s, of course to us. Youngsters, he was an old man. That's how it is, isn't it? But he wasn't too old. And he was brought in as a deserter. He'd been 12 years away since his desertion. The thing that I remember about it was this man's astonishment when we interviewed him that he would still have a penalty to face. He really was deeply shocked. For a time, he'd felt like someone on the run for two, three, four years, but then it seemed not to matter. And after 12 years, he'd got to the point of thinking, these things just get washed away by time. And then somehow or other, someone told the local police, he's a deserter. And they went round and arrested him and turned him in. And so he came all the way back to his unit. And there he was on the records. And he had to be court-martialed. He had to be sentenced. And he was sentenced, I think, to two or three years in a place that sounds very pretty. But down there in the West Country, there used to be a military prison at a beautiful place called Chepton Mallet. And it was a place of horrors. However, he suffered there his due sentence, but I remember his horror and shock. And I remember reading about a, an American man who was years since he deserted. And he was turned in to the police somehow. And when he had to face the music, he said, but I thought there'd been an amnesty for deserters. This was so long ago. It was nearly 40 years, I think. Oh, yes, they said to him, there has been an amnesty. But it's not a total amnesty. Instead of going to prison, you have to give up your good job and you'd become an executive of some kind. And you have to do a public service job for two years. So he had to do his two years as a binman and lose his plush job. There were still consequences. I remember reading about that. There were still consequences. And if consequences continue for years in human justice, do you think God forgets when he's been insulted and rejected and despised and possibly slandered by us and ridiculed? Oh, friends, it is a foolish thing to refuse the feast of love and of kindness and forgiveness and new life. It's a foolish, foolish thing. I don't want you to go away and say, that man who preached in that place just calls people foolish. I don't mean that. I'm just trying to reason with souls. For the sake of your eternal destiny, for your, the sake of your life and happiness, don't refuse the living God and his kindness and his mercy in salvation. Don't refuse Christ, the Savior, 
who stooped so low in his love, pity, and compassion for lost sinners. That's what this parable is all about. Verse 24, I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall so much as taste of my supper. But look at the positive side. Then the master of the house said, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. So now there is gathered in, not the middle classes, though this is not about class, but the poorest of the poor, and the handicapped and the enfeebled, and the inadequate and the desperate. That's us, friends. How we need free salvation. How we need all of us Mercy and kindness alone. That's salvation. Purchased by Christ in his death on Calvary. Received by faith, not by works. You can never earn him. You can never deserve him. In his sight, we've done everything wrong. We're all of us selfish, deceitful, and everything else. Just confess your sin. Tell him, Lord, I am the needy sinner. I never saw it before. Lord, I am the fool who despised the creator of the universe, the judge of all the earth. Lord, forgive me and help me. And if you're sincere in your heart, you'll never be the same again. He'll come and embrace you and bless you and you'll know him. Dear friends, let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night. Forbid it that we should go out of this place and discard and reject thy kindness and thy mercy. O oh Lord, move in our hearts and draw us near that we may have eternal life and know the living God. Lord, come and bless. We ask it in the name of our Saviour for his sake. Amen.